0: Morning Crossroads, it's good to be with you today. Uh, My name is Pastor Brad and uh, I serve as Senior Pastor here at Crossroads and so we welcome all of you. Uh, First of all, my uh, wife Terry and I just want to say thank you to all of you who over the course of the last couple of weeks have just sent cards and notes and lots of love as we Uh, have gone through the process and continue our process the morning of the loss of my mom. We had, last week I was gone because we had our celebration service. Um, It was filled with laughter and tears and all that you expect. Um, And it was fun because we just had an opportunity, there's the word, uh, just to uh, celebrate my mom and um, and again, part of that is celebrating my dad and the heritage that is there. On a more serious note, I just want you to know that Matthew is not the real contender with his chili cook-off. It's me. So, um, you don't need to be worried about Matthew's chili at all. I'm just saying out right out front. Uh, we've had a... Uh, we didn't do the chili cook-off last year because of all things COVID, but we have done it a couple years prior to it. It's a great day, and so I want to encourage you to come and just have fun with us. Uh, but also, seriously, if you're even a partially halfway good chili maker, or you want to Google chili and try it for the first time, sign up. Uh, we'd love to have you on board. The more, the The merrier. What? Next week? Okay, everybody bring gifts. Patty, we're going to have to find a birthday cake. <laughs> awesome. See, it's getting better all the time. Oh, this is great. Wow. Um so, we have been in the midst of this series called "A Great Deception, and I don't know if you're like me, but have you ever been in a situation where maybe, uh, you're maybe in a little contention with maybe, you know, your spouse, not that Terry and I are ever in contention, but you might... Um, or maybe with a kid in your household, or maybe your parent or a neighbor, and and all of a sudden you just start saying things or responding in a way. You just go, where did that come from? Well, part of our conversation in this great deception as we've gone through this is is that sometimes uh, there are disordered desires within us that happen. And what we're going to look at today is that sometimes those disordered desires come from maybe something that has happened in our past that has affected us deep within, inside, inside us. And so just to kind of recap, because you, you know if you've been here a while, I like to recap things because it's a good reminder uh, of what we're talking about when it comes to disordered uh, or this great deception. And what we've been talking about is that we have these deceptive ideas which come from the devil and they play into our disordered desires, which is our flesh. And then they become normalized in a sinful society or our world. Meaning, the more people um, fall to that deceptive idea, the more it becomes the norm in our society. And I can list off a bunch of things and you go, yep, (laughs) that's definitely what has happened. And what we looked at first was what uh, Jesus said about the devil. And there was really three things just to remind us that for Jesus, the devil is real. His main goal is death and destruction. And his primary strategy is lies and deception. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of focusing in on the flesh and that this is our disordered desires and that what it is is that it's desires within us that don't line up with God and and that sometimes even things that are good desires can get disordered if they become more important to us than um, our relationship with God. So today... We're, we're going to talk about how uh, desires become disordered, or one way that our desires can become disordered. And so we're going we're gonna to look at the story of Absalom, who is one of the sons of King David. And many of you have heard this story, but we're going to revisit it today. And I'm not going to put the verses up on the screen today, because we're going to read a bunch of verses and we're going to start in Second Samuel chapter 14. So I'm going to be reading from the ESV version, uh, but you can follow along in your own Bible or just sit and listen as we walk through this. So first of all, what who Absalom? One of King David's sons. But look at what it says in Second Samuel 14, verse 25 about Absalom, starting there. It says this. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. I have so many comments I want to make right about there, but we're going to hold on. And when he cut his, the hair on his head, for at the end of every year he would cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, it weighed... Uh, and he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels, by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Now, the ironic thing here is that that meant his, what, 200 shekels? That, that, that means his hair weighed almost five pounds at the end of it. I mean, think about it. How How heavy does hair have to be? That's five pounds. Eric, you know all about that, right? Oh, sorry. Uh, So here is Absalom in all his glory. I mean, he's the man of all men, this young man. And what he wants to do is take over the throne of his father, King David. So Absalom began this process to dethrone, and so he began to set himself up as the favorite of the people. And this is how he did this. So we're going to jump to chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And we're going to see what Absalom did become the favorite in the hearts of the people. It says this, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, hey, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is from such and such, a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Or in other words, oh, that I were king. Then every man would, with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Sounds like politicians to me. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Picture that a chariot and horses in front and Absalom in that chariot, and in front of him, 50 men marching. That says nothing more than power and importance. And then you think of the long flowing hair and how handsome he is. I mean... Wow, I mean, I would want to make him king too. And then he tops it off by everybody coming to the gate. And in that time, the gate was a place where you came and you brought your disputes because the men of the city would stand there and Absalom and, you know, yeah, if I were king, I mean, the king doesn't have anybody here to listen to you, but I will listen to you. Do you see it happening? Do you see him winning the hearts of the people? Let's go to chapter or verse seven as we continue on in this story. And at the end of four years, for four years, Absalom is doing this, right? Four years. Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. So Absalom was gone for a while. and We'll find out why he was gone for a while. And he just made this promise. At least that's what he says he did. He made this promise. We continue on in verse uh, 10, or in verse 9. The king said to him, go in peace. So he rose and he went to Hebron, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went two hundred men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for a thiftful fell. Say that ten times twice. The Gileanite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So after four years. Absalom makes up an excuse to go, and then he gets all these people out there, and he proclaims himself king. David has only got one response at this time, and we see this in verse 13. He says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom, Then David said to all her servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. You see... In that day, if somebody makes a coup or attempts to take over the throne, the only way you're going to guarantee you're going to keep that throne is by killing the king and all of his household. And so David knew what was coming, and so the only response David had at that time was to flee. This story is almost... Good enough to be a made-for-movie thriller because if you read into the story more, you have spies and double agents. You have people hiding in wells so they aren't found out. You have people trying to figure out who's the enemy and who is friends. And then you have some people who are weeping that David is not in the city anymore. And you have others throwing stones at David. It is a crazy story of division, divide and people on opposite sides. And all throughout this, it is the people who get hurt. So when Absalom is trying to figure out what to do next, he's gone into Jerusalem and he's gotten the throne. He's trying to figure out one of the advisors who has happened to be David's advisor, says, hey, let's grab 12,000 men and let's go and tonight chase them down, surprise them, and wipe them out. Another advisor said, no, 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 you don't want to do that because David, is he's like a cornered bear, and if you do that, he'll strike out, and all these people will come out and start fighting for him, and if you have any kind of loss, they'll, the people will rally back around David, so Wait. Well, Absalom kind of took the advice of the second guy and waited a little bit, but then Absalom began to pursue King David. And in 18.5, it says the king charged his generals, because here's what began to happen. A war broke out, and as they started battling, he told his generals before they go out into this battle, he said, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard the king charge his commanders concerning Absalom. So even though David was pushed out by his son, he still said, deal gently with Absalom. So David's men are now winning this battle. 20,000 of Absalom's men have been slaughtered in Absalom is riding away, trying to escape. And it's said that he's riding on this mule through the forest, and he goes under this big oak tree and this long flowing hair that is a sign of his masculinity and his beauty gets caught in the branches. And all of a sudden, he's dangling from the branches of this giant oak tree, and he's hanging there. One of David's servants sees him hanging there and so he goes and tells Joab who is one of David's generals and one of the ones that were charged to deal gently with Absalom and Joab goes and kills Absalom In verse 18 or chapter 18 verse 33 we hear David's response and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. David is in mourning. And he wishes he could take the place of his son But there's a question that rises up for me and that is this. Why does Absalom try to take over the throne of his father, King David? Is it because he wanted to be in charge or maybe he was a power-hungry young man or maybe he was an ungrateful, spoiled brat of a kid that was never disciplined. But whatever the reason... 20,000 men died. And these men, think about it. They were co-countrymen. They were all Israelites. And some of them might even have been cousins or maybe even literally brothers. And they were divided over who was going to be king. But I think we can find the answer to maybe why Absalom tried to take over his father's throne In order to look at this and to find the answer for this, we need to go back in the story because it's not just what we see on the surface in the story. We have to look deeper whether this is really about a spoiled kid or not. There are, this is something that. What movies do, and even TV shows, they tell a part of the story, and then they go back to an earlier time, five or ten years later, so you get a better understanding. I mean, one of our favorite shows, This Is Us, it it's a great example of that, where they tell a part of the story, and then they go back here, and they... So, you can get a better understanding of what's going on here. And then they move forward, and you have to keep track of where they're at. But it gives, it's, a, it's a way of giving you a fuller understanding. And that's what we're going to do right now. So, I want us to turn back to chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. We're going to start to verse 1. It says Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So here you have Absalom and Tamar, their brother and sister, same dad, David, and, and mom, and then you have Amnon over here, he's a half-brother to them, same dad, David, but a different mom, and so there is this brother-sister thing, but Amnon is really overtaken by Tamar, but I want you to notice the wording here, because Amnon is frustrated, and he says, it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. Not that it seemed hard to love her, or to be with her, or take her out on a date, or to talk to her, but to do anything to her. This is a story of lust, at its worst. It's not seeing the other person as another human being. It's seeing the person as an object to satisfy Their own desire. Now, Amnon has a friend named Jonadab, and Jonadab actually is a cousin of Amnon's. And Jonadab is seeing that his friend Amnon is miserable every day, and Amnon uh, or Jonadab says to him, Why are you miserable? You are the king's son. In other words, you can get whatever you want. You're the king's son, and not only are you the king's son, you're the eldest king's son, which means you're next in line for the throne. You can get whatever you want. So Jonadab says, uh, pretend like you're sick, and when your father, King David, comes in to tell you, uh, then tell him you want your sister Tamar to come and care for you. So David sends Tamar to Amnon, and she begins to make him some cakes or some bread. And if we go to verse 9, we can see what happens next. This is chapter 13. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he, Amnon, refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She surprised. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Amnon raped his sister. He raped his sister because of a disordered desire inside of him, his flesh, that he can get whatever he wants. And you may wonder, where did this disordered desire come from? Maybe it came from his father. Think about this. This is King David. I know I'm talking about King David, the man after God's own heart, the man who killed Goliath, the man who led the Israelites into battle and conquered the tens of thousands, and the man who is known as the greatest king of all time in Israel, and the man who has written most of the Psalms, but David was far from perfect. Remember, David had multiple wives and concubines. Remember, David raped Bathsheba. Yes, that's what it is, because a woman can't say no to a man in that culture, especially if that man is king. And then, not only that, but he had Bathsheba's husband murdered. No wonder... Amnon rapes his sister. It's a disordered desire. It's his flesh that is really what was passed down from his father. Let's go to verse 15 of chapter 13 and see what happens next. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. But she said no to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. But he would not listen to her. We can see that this is built, this whole thing is built out of lust because as soon as he got what he wanted, hatred filled his heart towards the woman he was lusting after. This is what happens when we sometimes respond out of our disordered desire, out of our flesh, other people get hurt. As a result, Tamar rips her robe, which is what the daughters of the king would wear, and put ashes on her head and cried out. In verse 20, we see what else happens. And her brother Absalom said to her, "'Has Amnon your brother been with you? "'Now hold your peace, my sister,' He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When the king David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. In that culture, Tamar is now damaged goods. So she now spends the rest of her life as a desolated woman in her brother's house. And David, it's good, we see that King David is angry, but what we don't see is we don't see King David do anything. And Absalom... His anger boils. It turns to hate and to bitterness. Nothing is done. Two years go by. And in that two years, every time he sees Tamar and every time he sees Amnon, he thinks of what Amnon did in this This bitterness just grows. And then one day, Absalom invites his father, King David, to his house. It's sheep shearing time, and so they have a big feast, and it's a grand occasion, lots of food and lots of celebration. And so Absalom calls his father, David, and says, why don't you bring your family and celebrate this feast with us? And David doesn't go because he doesn't want the royal family to be a burden on his son. So not only does it seem like David doesn't handle the rape of Tamar at all, now he doesn't go to the house of his son when his son invites him over for a feast. The bitterness in Absalom continues to grow and his father is absent. Then Absalom asks, king, asks the king if Amnon can come over. It's kind of a play date, but not really a play date. And so the king says yes, and he sends his other sons there, because I think King David probably had an idea that maybe something could go wrong if it was just Amnon and Absalom And so off they go and Absalom tells his men when Amnon is high in spirits, or in other words, drunk, kill him. And so that's what happens. Amnon is killed by his brother's men and now Absalom runs away. We're going to read starting in verse thirty-seven of chapter thirteen. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Imahud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Yes, David mourns and his son Amnon, and he longs to be with Absalom, but he does nothing. He doesn't go to Absalom, he stays put in his castle. Three years go by, and now it's been five years since Amnon raped Tamar, and Absalom has fled, and so Joab steps in, and um, Joab wants to help the king help him discover that not going to Absalom is not the right thing to do. But he's not not ready to say something specifically. And so he gets some woman to dress like she is in mourning and goes in and tells her story to David, her story about two brothers fighting and one killed the other and now the clan wants the other one dead. And David says, I will stop them if he's your only son. And the woman then says you are convicting yourself because you're not protecting your own son. So David finally brings Absalom home. And We see in chapter 14, verses 23 and 24... So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And well, listen to this: and the king said, "Let him dwell apart in his own house; he is not to come into my presence." So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. David longs to see his son, but keeps him separate. There's a disordered desire within David that's keeping him from stepping into that which is painful. Another two years go by. Seven years total. All Absalom wants to do is see his father. And in 14.28, it says this, So Absalom lived two, four years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Can you imagine being just down the street from your father for two years and not being allowed to go see him. Verse 29. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time. This is Absalom. He's trying to get Joab to help him out, but Joab would not come to And then he said to his servants, "This is Absalom. See Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire." So Absalom set servants set the field on fire. Then Job arose, Joab arose, and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, "Why have your servants set my field on fire?" And Absalom answered to joy. Behold, I sent word to you, Come here that I may send you to ask the king, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Imagine how far you have to go in division with your father to, be, to feel like you would rather be dead. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. It's been seven years since Amnon raped Tamar. Five years since Absalom killed Amnon. Two years after Absalom returns. And finally, the king and his son are face to face. What is their greeting? It's the cultural kiss between two men. No embrace, no hug, no how much I have missed you. No emotion. It is a son having to kneel before his father because he's king and it's a kiss. David has wounded his son, Absalom. He did not protect his sister, Tamar. He did not give his sister justice. Nothing happened to Amnon. He did not come to his house when invited. He did not pursue him when he ran away. He did not want to see him when he came back. And so the question that I have is, why? Why? Why King David? what has happened to this king who is a man after God's own heart? Who as a teenager, his faith was so huge in relationship to God that he was able to stand before a giant and kill him. You see, this man with... That's a man after God's own heart also has disordered desires. He also lives in his flesh and wrestles with his flesh. And he can also be tempted by lies of the devil. And maybe it's because somewhere along the line, King David was wounded by his father, Jesse. We don't know a lot about David's childhood, other than he was a shepherd out caring for the sheep and the youngest. But I think it's interesting that when Samuel came to Jesse to anoint the next king, it was Jesse and his seven oldest sons that were there. David was not And when Samuel asks if there is anyone else, Jesse replies, There remains yet the youngest. The Hebrew word there is katan, which could mean smallest or insignificant or unimportant. Maybe for Jesse, his son David was unimportant. I don't want to read too much into this, but in that culture, the oldest son is the most important. He receives the double portion of the inheritance. He leads the family once the father is gone. So what if David really didn't know how to be a loving father because maybe his father didn't know how to love him? Those are just thoughts going in my head. I, there's nothing that I can point to in Scripture that says this is exactly what happened. But it makes me wonder because we know that the sins of the father carry down to the third generation. And that sin is, doesn't mean I'm getting punished for the sins of my great grandfather. What it means is that this disordered desire, the flesh, if, if there is something that gets passed down, it's that disordered desire. And what you'll notice is if somebody, a family, has a problem with addiction, most likely the next generation, there will be kids that have problems with addiction. And it carries down. And, and that's, that's the way this disorder desire works. And so now we see why, at the end of the seven years, Absalom's response is, I can be a better king than my father. The bitter irony in this whole story is this Absalom's name is a combination of two Hebrew words Abba, father, Shalom, peace, meaning peace of the father. Absalom didn't experience peace from his father. So, as we see from this story, it's more than just the story of a spoiled prince. Absalom is wounded. He responds out of that wound. King David is wounded. He responds out of that wound. And this is not something that is old or new. And it's not just something that is talked about within Christian circles. It's talked about in the world. People talk about the Father Wound. They recognize that as parents, we wound our kids. And sometimes it's siblings. And sometimes it's a teacher and a coach. We all experience it. Back in the 80s, there was this great movie that came out called The Kid, starring Bruce Willis. It's about a 40-year-old man who goes through a midlife crisis. He's not married. He has a hard time making any kind of relationship works. He treats people with real harshness, not caring about them at all, only caring about himself. And all of a sudden, in his life, shows up this little boy. And it just happens to be that this 7-year-old boy that shows up as is. Him when he was seven. Okay, so he's 40. The seven-year-old boy shows up. It's him when he's seven. And they're trying to figure out why he has all these issues. And they think it all re- goes back to a fight that he lost when he was seven years old. And they think that's why this little boy come back. I'm going to show you a clip from this movie. And in this scene, Bruce Willis is the 40-year-old man. Okay, this is from the 80s. So Bruce Willis looks really young. Uh, The boy's in the red jacket himself, and this scene is where they find out why the boy, in all of his 40 years, has had such a hard time with relationships. Let's show that screen, that movie. What is the movie? kill her faster what we're gonna lose you pull some stuff like you did today you're killing her i found the screw dad screw stop crying here's the screw dad look here it is here it is i found it stop crying look at the screw here it is stop crying stop you gotta grow up now do you understand Grow up. Grow up! Mom's dying. your next birthday. Did I do it? No. No, you didn't do it. It's not your fault. Dad was just saying those things because he's scared. Because he knows that he has to raise you alone and he doesn't know how to do it. starting up again. Come Because I just figured out where I got that twitch from. Somebody called the way ambulance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gonna need him now, huh? It wasn't until this man saw the gift of seeing how the wound was inflicted that everything became clear. That's how he got the twitch. He initially thought the wound happened because of a fight, but it ended up because his dad was afraid of losing his wife and doing life alone. We all, we all have been wounded by our parents. And we all wound our kids. This is why I've said before, when our kids turn 18, we sat them down and we said, I know that somewhere along the line i said something, did something, or didn't say something, or didn't do something that hurt you. I'm just going to say right now I admit it and I ask for your forgiveness. And if you need to talk about it, come. I we will sit down with you and we'll we'll own up to it. So what can I learn today? Just a few things I want to go through quickly. First thing is this. We've all been wounded. It's a product of the fallen world. It's the devil at work. So what do we do? First, know that you have been wounded. Just know it. That's the first thing. Second, Our wound creates a false self. This false self is the flesh, or it's the disordered desires. Dallas Willard says this, The whole false self, our lifestyle, is an elaborate defense against entering our wounded heart. It is a chosen blindness. Our false self stubbornly blinds each of us to the light and the truth of our own emptiness and hollowness. It is the story of my friend Mark Benson who shared two weeks ago. His false self was a fear that he didn't like his voice. It wasn't until he named it so this is what we do. We name our false self. We name our fear. We name our wound. For me, my wound is a fear of failure. So I name it. It's good to name it. Third, healing begins and ends with Jesus. Stop right there. It begins and ends with Jesus. This is why Jesus came. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Bind up the brokenhearted. And on and on it goes. Jesus came to heal us of our wounds. So what do you do? You invite Jesus into that place of wounding. Wherever it is, you invite Jesus into it. Repentance and forgiveness is the anointment of healing. Forgiveness is a choice. If you don't forgive or don't apologize and say I'm sorry, then that wound will say a wound. You only begin to experience healing as you, after you name it and invite Jesus into it, you start forgiving. Healing takes time. And then the last thing, Your wound equals your ministry. This is the coolest thing. Wherever you're wounded, as you begin to experience healing, that will become the area that God uses you. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent your son Jesus to bring healing to our wounds. I pray that you give us the courage to step into that woundedness, to to face it head on and invite you into it. And I pray that you would reveal to us by your Spirit those areas in our life where we are wounded. In Jesus' name, amen.